my fellow investors, welcome back to the Newcomer Invested channel. Whether you're new or experienced, everyone's welcome. Now on this channel, we talk about great businesses and make investing accessible and fun for everyone. I'm your host, Anthony. Welcome back to the show. Now, before we get started, as always, my friends, I do have to remind you that nothing I say is financial advice. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm just telling you what I do. But on this journey of learning to be a better investor, I have made mistakes along the way. And as a result, I'd always encourage you to also do your own research. Now, for today's episode, I wanted us to do a bit of a deeper dive on a business that I personally find really fascinating. Um, the business called Teladoc Health. You may have heard about it. It became a big name, especially during the pandemic as a actually the leading virtual telemedicine company. And I, I've owned this one for a couple of years now, three, three years, I believe. And in the spirit of transparency, I know I've referred to it before, but I'll have to say it again for those who don't know. This is my uh, biggest mistake in terms of dollar value. I am down significantly on this one. And as an investor, you have to be transparent and honest with yourself. And obviously understand that sometimes you'll get stuff right, sometimes you'll get stuff wrong. Now, I'm fortunate that in my five years investing, so far I got a lot more right than wrong. But when you do get stuff wrong, you have to really be able to get the lessons from it. And my huge takeaway from Teladoc, which I really, luckily I'm adopting this with all my you know, investments after this one, was you cannot buy anything at any price. You could have the best business in the world, you know, a Microsoft or an Apple, they are still not necessarily worth buying, you know, if it's a million dollars a share. Sometimes the price can be disconnected from the underlying business and you really just have to be able to value it. Um, even if it seems like the growth is unprecedented and will be unprecedented, you know, you have to be careful with that. So that was my huge lesson and takeaway with Teladoc. So, you know, I've already acknowledged and, and moved past this as, you know, a, a, an individual investor that this was a mistake. Uh, and yet, I still want us now to do a dive into the business itself because, you know, a poor investment at a certain price doesn't necessarily mean that it would still be a poor investment, you know, if it's down 80% from that price, right? In fact, it may be a good one at that point. So that's what I want us to kind of look at today. Um, and again, just do an analysis on the business because I think it's an interesting one that has a lot of positives and some negatives and they're worth looking at. And then at the end, you know, you can draw your own conclusion on if you feel it's a good investment or not. Obviously, this isn't advice, but this is me breaking down at least what this business is and what's going through my head as I continue to hold this investment that has been very negative for me for now. Anyhow, time to do this deep dive. Now, Teladoc, let's do a very quick intro first so we all understand kind of what it is. At the high level, it is the American and perhaps global leader in virtual care. Currently sits at a market cap of around $2.4 billion, so it's a billion dollar company. They were founded over 20 years ago, but they've been led since 2009 by CEO Jason Gorvik, who's an important person, we'll get back to him later. He's really been instrumental in defining the vision of Teladoc for these last 15 years or so that he's been in charge. Really for all these years, they've actually grown a lot by acquisition, and they've done that actually to strengthen their moat, uh, and to build on that vision that I'm talking about, which they call whole person care. Now, ironically, and we'll dive a bit more into the, the failures later on in this episode, but this vision of whole person care has been really the reason for both their huge success in terms of them being the leader and it's undisputed in the field, but also them making bigger mistakes further down the line. First, let's hear Jason talk about this and define what this vision is for us. 
I took this clip from a YouTube video that they have on their channel, Teladoc Health Channel. Highly recommend actually this video for anyone who's interested in learning about the companies. About 20, 25 minutes, I think. They go over a lot of things, but uh, this part specifically is relevant for us. Our definition of the whole person care may be a little different than others. We believe that it's a delivery model as one organization that addresses someone's full set of needs, both physical and mental, acute, episodic, chronic, and complex. As a consumer, whole person care starts when you open the app or you pick up the phone. You tell us what you're dealing with, and then it's our job to route you to the right solution. Maybe that's your primary care physician. That physician will either resolve your issue on the spot, maybe help you manage your needs virtually over time, or even refer you to a high-quality in-network clinician in your community. What's important is that it's access to everyone that you need to help manage every aspect of your health. So the benefits of whole person care are clear for consumers, for hospitals and health systems, for health plans and employers. Consumers are tired of point solutions that are limited in their scope and minimize the impact that's possible. Whole person care allows for a portfolio of solutions that work seamlessly as one, that help you make the right health and wellness choices for all of those consumers. Now, a lot of complex words thrown into there. Seems a little cryptic, but there's actually a lot in what he just said here. Let me give you a bit of context. Historically, virtual health services have focused on one type of health issue. So you just heard him mention a bunch of them like acute, chronic, episodic, complex, etc., right? Those are very different types of issues. However, a lot of them can be linked. Now, to translate all this to you in English, for example, uh, if you don't know, acute is basically a short-term issue, right? So let's say an acute respiratory infection, like a pneumonia, that can lead to a chronic condition where your, your lung tissue is affected for a long time, right? Or, for example, acute psychological stress could be a, you know, a, a very tough event, like, like a death in a family. That could lead to chronic mental health issue, like depression. And that can also lead to chronic physical condition. So in the past, all these virtual health services, they kind of just catered to one type. And as a result, they weren't really attractive for any of the big companies in general, right, that are dealing with them. I mean, why would a company sign up all their employees to a virtual health plan that only deals with, you know, diabetes, for example? That's, that's ridiculous. It doesn't work. Now, that's how it used to be until Teladoc identified that issue. They were the first really to do so. And then they were the first to start acquiring companies to build this whole person care capability where now all of a sudden, within one company, one service, you really have access to solve, you know, literally the vast majority of all issues that you could encounter. And this has led to them, of course, uh, continuing to grow in scale, now up to 90 million members, most in the US, but also internationally, which is, it's actually, I'm saying this a very matter of fact, right? But this is a pretty outstanding, incredible thing that's happened here in the world of healthcare. And that happened just in the last 10 years. Okay, now that we understand the high-level vision of Teladoc, um, led by Jason Gorvik and his whole person care vision, let's break down the individual pieces of the puzzle that make up this whole vision. And we'll start with the integrated care segment. Now, this is the enterprise segment. It's purely business to business. So Teladoc does not talk to you, random person. They talk to your employer. Your employer pays Teladoc a fee. They call them access fees. It's contractually recurring. Um, and it's on a per member per month basis. And Teladoc basically gives the employer access to their whole platform with all the various types of services that they have so that whatever disease or chronic or acute or whatever condition you have, there is some, something available for you to help you out. 
if you are currently an American person working for a Fortune 500 company, there's actually a very high likelihood that your employer has some kind of Teladoc service available for you if you want. In fact, it's more than 50% of the Fortune 500 employers. Uh, that also would include afterwards thousands of small businesses, labor unions, and public sector employers. Uh, so it's really a lot of people, right? In terms of global, because the business is international too, they've also um, partnered with over 70 global insurance and financial services firms. Their services are available in over 175 countries and in 40 languages. They've completed over 15 million virtual care visits too. It's the largest volume in that industry. So yeah, when I'm saying it's, you know, the undisputed leader, it's, it, they really are. Now, their rush to make all their acquisitions to build the first really whole person virtual care company has been uh, instrumental in them building their moat because they're now seen as the easy solution for, you know, governments uh, or, or companies who want to quickly provide an affordable and efficient method of virtual care for people, for example, who don't have family doctors. Now, there's actually a pretty recent example dating back to the fall of 2023 in uh, our Canadian province of Newfoundland and Labrador, where the the provincial government actually announced that they'd awarded a contract to Teladoc specifically for that reason, to give access to thousands of people who don't have a family doctor, mostly people living in rural areas, right, who kind of stuck, don't have a doctor, what do we do? But there, all of a sudden, they get virtual healthcare services that covers all the services that they would need, right? Now, this by itself isn't necessarily that impressive. I mean, Newfoundland Labrador, you know, wonderful province, uh, home to great companies like Fortis, and yet, it's not a very large market, right? So why are we so impressed and why am I mentioning it? I'm mentioning it because Teladoc got this contract despite the protests of a Newfoundland and Labrador-based virtual healthcare company that would have been almost 10 times less expensive. They protested and they asked the federal, I mean, the provincial government to give them a contract and they said, no, we are giving it to Teladoc. Now, scratch your head, why could that be? The reason is, again, Teladoc has everything. and they have the credibility that they've built up for these 20 years that they've been operating. That's worth something. That's a moat. Now, the other piece of the puzzle that strengthens their moats, of course, is their access to data, right? If you have over 90 million people that use your services, you know, you have a treasure trove of data and you can use this to keep improving health outcomes. And in fact, I'm saying this just to say this is not a gimmick. Uh, part of their fees are linked to health outcomes, right? So it's part of the contract that they have to be able to, to solve people's problems. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. And they have consistently proven that they're able to do that. And I suspect with the amount of data that they have that they're using is going to keep getting better. So anyway, to sum up the integrated care segment, very interesting one. It's really been what they used to get a foothold into this world of virtual care. Obviously, now uh, that they've scaled up a lot, it's really all about increasing profitability, increasing margins, etc. But uh, yeah, highly recurring revenue, which is something we like. Now, the second operating segment is BetterHelp. Again, if you are an American, it's very likely that you've at least heard of it. It is the uh, American and perhaps global leading virtual therapy service. Um, so they connect you with, you know, a therapist. This is usually something you'll go to if you are, you know, experiencing depression or anxiety or, or anything like that. They were founded back in 2013. They were acquired by Teladoc in 2015. And I need you to remember this number, okay? Teladoc acquired BetterHelp for $3.5 million in cash. Not billion, but million with an M. This will be important later in the episode and you'll understand why. 
But anyway, BetterHelp has grown to be very, very big, which is why it now has its own operating segment, has almost half a million members, and it's a billion dollar business in terms of revenue. Uh, at the end of the year, just over a billion here. So this is pretty impressive stuff. And, uh, you know, a quick note on this therapy, uh, you know, culturally now in the West, at least has become much more accepted. I know there was a time, let's say our parents or our grandparents generation, where if you even utter the word therapy, they'll say, oh my God, you're crazy. And it's like a taboo thing, right? But nowadays it's much more common um, and it's not really a stigma anymore. And in fact, most people under 30 have some kind of thing going on with them, right? Whether it's, you know, a, a, a bit of anxiety here and there or something more serious like, a, you know, a depression. There, there's stuff going on and we're not scared to talk about it. Now, you know, it does sound a bit grim, the way that I'm talking about this here, but I would say that the total addressable market uh, for <laughs> therapy services is growing steadily. And unfortunately, I don't really see, uh, you know, something that's going to reverse that trend because A, you know, increasing acceptance and B, increasing, you know, mental health troubles. Now we can speculate a lot on the reasons, whether it's, you know, the internet, social media, you know, even macro uncertainty, like, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's a fact that is hard to deny. Uh, but that bodes very well for a business like BetterHelp. So I expect them to continue growing their uh, revenues and their members. And this is a direct-to-consumer service. So it's you as a random person now, you just take your phone and you, you know, download the app and then you pay a fee and then you see a therapist. That's how it works. Okay, now that we've broken down, again, very high-level vision of what is whole person care. We've broken down the integrated care segment and the better help segment, which are the two operating segments of Teladoc. Now we can start looking at what the hell went wrong. If you Google Teladoc stock chart, which I'm doing right now, you Google that and you look, you'll see something very strange. You'll see it kind of growing, you know, from IPO all the way up to 2019. And then in early 2020, it started to skyrocket. And that, of course, went right with the pandemic. It went from, let's say, you know, an average of $83 or so at the end of 2019, all the way up to almost $300 in early 2021. And that was the all-time high. And since then, boom, it started falling. So almost $300 2021 down to $15 dollars now which is 95 percent drop from the all-time high now that is not a small drop that is not just you know macro uncertainty or something this is a very big deal now what went wrong now to be fair we can blame some of it on you know the random general market environment uh as we know pandemic stocks there are others that have very similar charts i'm thinking of businesses like zoom uh, or even an online services I like a lot, business called Fiverr, they have almost the same chart. So of course, during the early times of the pandemic, a lot of people thought that, you know, everything would just be online forever and all the online type of businesses just skyrocketed. But of course, they could not deliver the results that um, the stock price was, you know, asking for. And so of course, as a result, you saw these huge crashes. So that's part of the reason for it, but we cannot skip over a huge mistake that Teladoc made. And in a way, this is why I was referring to this right at the start of the episode. They were victims of their own success and victims of their own whole person care vision that they were trying to achieve. And the name of that mistake is called Livongo. 
Now, a huge component of the thesis behind this whole person care vision, and we're seeing this actually play out in real, right, is the idea that once you have this united service, you can start cross-selling services between different types of consumers, right? So if you have someone who is there just for mental health, with the better help, well, you can try to suggest some of the other services. Or if someone has the primary care service, maybe they, you, you know, you've, you've detected that they also have a chronic condition, and then you can uh, cross-sell services from their, their chronic health services. Now, to achieve this vision, Teladoc had identified a competitor that was actually widely regarded as the leader in chronic uh, health services, specifically managing diabetes, high blood pressure, and weight management. And so Teladoc Management had rightfully uh, believed that buying that service and integrating them within their roster would actually, again, give them, keep building that moat that they were working towards, right? Um, and that's true. The problem is, if you recall this first lesson that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, is you cannot buy anything at any price. Sometimes even the greatest business is not worth it if it's a bad price. And uh, in that case, you know, Teladoc, they've really made that mistake. They purchased Livongo, but it was at an eye-watering $18.5 billion. $18.5 billion with a B, my friends. Compare this to BetterHelp that they acquired for $3.5 million. Yeah, that's... That's just insane. Now, of course, hindsight is 2020. We didn't, like at that point in time, no one really necessarily thought, oh my God, this is the worst deal ever. Or this is a bad idea or whatever, right? It was just, everything was going up in value. We were all happy. You know, COVID was bad, but somehow everyone was getting rich because of these pandemic stocks. So it was fine. But the issue is what happened afterwards. What happened afterwards was the story with a lot of the pandemic stocks, right? which is reality caught up to us. Everyone realized that, you know, we're most likely going to be into a hybrid world, right? Like, this is there now, but we are not in a fully virtual world. Like, the physical world still exists, and it's not going away. And a lot of these businesses that grew, you know, 50% year over year, 60%, that trend is not continuing. They're still going to grow, but not, you know, double digit like that. And so a lot of these stocks started crashing down, including Teladoc. Now, that by itself, that's reasonable, that's fair enough. But what happened is, because of that acquisition that they made, they had to start writing off the price of that, because a lot of that value basically went into thin air. So in accounting, you call that a non-cash goodwill impairment charge. And those charges were gigantic. I mean, they lost, I believe, something like $80 per share last year or the year before. And if you compare that to their current price of, you know, $14 uh, per share, I mean, that's just absolutely insanity, right? So that was extremely negative, and they haven't fallen out of this negative loop just yet. That's the issue. There is a huge disconnect between the market value of the assets of Levongo that they bought and the book value of these assets now, right? The book value is so much less than what they paid for it. So now they continue to amortize these intangible assets, um, and that shows up as a negative in their accounting statements. So on paper, in terms of the net income, which is the main measure that you use for profits, they are losing money. Now, this sounds extremely negative, and it is. Trust me, as a shareholder, I'm horrified. Uh, I have been horrified, and I still am by this. The good news, I will say, though, is this is a paper loss, right? 
So they're not bleeding cash. In fact, they are, um, you know, a free cash flow business. At least now they are uh, generating millions, hundreds of millions of free cash flow. And it seems as though this trend will continue. So on one hand, I'm upset by this big acquisition mistake, but they are surviving and I don't expect them to, you know, fall apart anytime soon. So that's the good news. Okay, now it seems as though we've established what is whole person care. We understand Teladoc at a high level. We also know what the two operating segments are, how they make their money. And we also know what the hell happened since the all-time high price in 2021. Now let's actually dive deep into the most recent results. They released their Q4 results as well as their annual results for 2023. And then we'll, with these results, we'll try to figure out what will the future look like for them. Now to first glance, what we have to say, and it comes as to no surprise given what we were talking about, um, but on a purely accounting basis, here we have a business that has lost money in 2023. Now, looking more closely, the main culprit for this ongoing loss has been, again, what we talked about, some of those non-cash charges. Now, to somewhat help us assess the business, Teladoc does provide us with a metric that many investors, myself included, find very distasteful. Uh, this metric is called adjusted EBITDA. Now, if you know, EBITDA is earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization. This metric excludes a bunch of costs and it actually helps people make uh, a bit of a more apples to apples comparison between companies. So really it's to help you see the operating performance of the business. And in some cases, businesses will also give you the adjusted EBITDA metric, and that excludes even more costs, including stock-based compensation, which can be a very, very large expense depending on the type of business. Now this metric, again, like I said, I find it very distasteful. Um, the late Charlie Munger himself has referred to it as bullshit earnings. He says that, you know, it should not be trusted and management often use this to kind of hide bad numbers. Now, in many cases, it's kind of true, though I would say, and this, to be honest, I mean, it's it's very disputed, right? Like, I don't think every investor agrees on this. Myself, personally, I would be more skeptical of adjusted EBITDA in a very CapEx-heavy kind of industry, thinking something like, you know, super gritty business where they have a bunch of factories and they're manufacturing, you know, stuff with real assets. I'm a bit less concerned about it for tech or software types of businesses, uh, simply because even though they have a lot of stock-based compensation, they tend to also have a lot of free cash flow, uh, especially in the later parts of the, the life of the business. And with that free cash flow, they can reduce the share count. So that, that's my two cents on why adjusted EBITDA. Depending on the industry, I, I'm more or less skeptical on it. In the case of Teladoc, again, I don't like it, but I understand why they would include it. And I do think it does help to assess the business. I just think ultimately you should never use this metric as a substitute for the others, but rather use it, uh, you know, with it so that you can see a full picture of what's going on. Okay. Now of what we just said, easier for us to start actually looking at numbers and comparing. Now, year over year change in terms of revenue, we're up 8%. Not bad. High single digit growth at $2.6 billion in total for the year. In terms of accounting profits and loss, uh, we have a loss again at $220 million. Uh, and that is an improvement of 98% relative to the prior year. That was a $13 billion loss. And again, that loss included the crazy impairments charge that they had due to the live on go acquisition, right? So that's where you kind of see okay, net income. Uh, profit or loss kind of metric is, is a bit weird here because this doesn't tell us how well the business actually did uh, just in terms of operations. And that's where adjusted EBITDA comes in. Adjusted EBITDA for the year, 328 million, positive, relative to positive 246 
6 million the prior year. That's a 33% improvement. Now, this is really important, again, because you consider here the fact that a lot of the costs that they have that just contributed to them actually accountingly losing money this year, these are non-cash charges, right? So full loss, $1.34 per share, but they had $1.48 per share in amortization of acquired intangibles, which is non-cash, for example. Now, the Telelock team was, of course, um, part of all of these layoffs that we're seeing uh, across the board in the tech industry, right? So they've launched a restructuring program. Uh, they've laid off a significant percentage of their employees. And it's, you know, while it's, of course, very sad, this is going to help them in terms of, you know, having a better margin profile and achieving profitability. But we're already seeing some signs here. For example, the integrated care segment adjusted EBITDA. Uh, up 42% for the year. The better help segment adjusted EBITDA up 19% for the year, right? So they're heading in the right direction and it's been going like this uh, four quarters in a row now. Lastly, what I think is the highlight, something that I've been very happy about as a shareholder is the free cash flow. Teladoc, with all their mistakes, which were very large, they have become a free cash flow business finally as they've scaled and now they're focusing on being profitable so they delivered 194 million in free cash flow for the year and they expect that number to move up uh moving forward and the other part that i really liked the cfo said so uh on the earnings call she confirmed their new capital allocation strategy moving forward um which had various components but one of which was using this free cash flow to start doing share buybacks something that they haven't really been doing right another very encouraging thing uh, and this is something I've noticed every quarter since I've held them, is that they are actually very good at um, providing guidance and just making their predictions, right? So usually they'll say, we expect revenue to be between, I don't know, 500 million, 600 million. We expect our adjusted EBITDA to be between X and Y number. And they always are within their guidance or they beat it. And in fact, I went back and looked at their guidance in 2022 that they gave for the year 2023. And they fit or beat the guidance. They beat on the net earnings per share. They beat on the adjusted EBITDA. And they fit right within the revenue. And they beat on the amount of integrated care members. So this is a sign of a company, again, that, you know, they are doing what they say. That matters a lot, especially for a business that has their back against the wall like this, right? And the guidance for 2024 really reflects everything that we've been leading up to so far, they are predicting overall pretty weak revenue growth. Um, integrated care, low to mid single digits, better help flat to low single digits, but they are predicting margin expansion on their adjusted EBITDA. They are predicting way more free cash flow, 210 to 240 million, and they are predicting a few more integrated care members up to 92 million. So those are numbers that we like. Even if the revenue growth is not huge, they are being more profitable. That's exactly what we want. Now, when the uh, earnings release came out, I was actually a bit shocked about the BetterHelp numbers. Uh, I thought they were surprisingly low, and luckily an analyst actually asked the CFO about this in the call. Now, they'd been hinting about this for a while, but her, her answer did make a lot of sense. Um, what, what's been a trend recently is, of course, they mentioned that, you know, competition is heating up. There's a lot of new people trying to get into that space. And basically, Teladoc now does not want to grow at any cost. They are not willing to make investments in customer acquisition if it's just not going to hit their internal um, uh, targets and, and investment hurdles that they want, right? So basically, they're not willing to spend uh, on marketing if the yield on that marketing is just not going to be worth it. So that's why they are predicting very flat revenue growth, but more profits.
But in the years ahead, they're actually looking into scaling more uh, into the international markets, which, according to Teladoc, actually has lower acquisition costs, at least for now. So that's kind of what they're looking at, but they're going to ramp up these investments more in the second half of 2024. Also pleased to hear the CFO confirm that stock-based compensation as an expense should decrease in the next three years. That expense especially had been a huge worry, but it's nice to know that it's going to be less of a worry moving forward. In this earnings call, they also did something brand new, which they never do, which was to provide guidance not just for 2024, but kind of estimates for the next three years too. And that is when the stock just tanked. It fell like, what, 20%? Uh, that was just that other day when they did that. Um, I guess because, again, you know, those those numbers were, you know, mid to low single digits instead of super explosive growth. And the market did not like that. Now, to be fair, that is disappointing. But I think that a lot of us are forgetting the fact that the business itself has grown at an insane rate uh, since the pandemic overall. Right. So if you were to, you know, try to make a, some kind of chart uh, and, and see the, the revenue growth, you know, overall, it's still been quite tremendous. I mean, total revenues in the full year 2019 was approximately 500 million, uh, more or less, right? And this year, 2023, 2.6 billion. So the business in five years is five times bigger in terms of revenue. So I'm less concerned if the revenue doesn't grow at an explosive rate, as long as that profitability increases, which it seems like that's what they're trying to do. So this has been a very painful journey. Uh, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. It hasn't been easy to be a shareholder of this business. But considering all of this information, and again, so much more that I, I haven't even necessarily shared in this podcast, I am still confident in the business. I am confident in their ability. Now that they've scaled, I do think that they're going to be able to, you know, march towards profitability. It's going to be slow. It's going to take some time. But the same way Uber now is, you know, exploding in the stocks like people are now finally loving uber it's been a similar type of thing where the business has scaled and then they had to focus on being profitable people didn't believe it but they did it and, and i do think teladoc is going to do that i think the business has staying power given the secular trend of virtual health i think again everyone on the 30 i mean there's no way i'm going to take a sick day from my work to physically go to a doctor if instead i can just have a one hour appointment on a day that i'm working from home so i think that's a very positive secular trend for a business like teladoc and given their established moat uh that they keep building and given those trends i, I think they have staying power and so now it's just about continuing to beat the competition and marching towards that profit now, ironically, you could also ask me, well, if you're so confident, are you buying more of it? And the answer is no, I am not averaging down on this business. I made a decision when they started having these insane losses that I would not buy anymore. It may sound counterintuitive because obviously if I think they're going to do well, I should be buying more. And yet part of investing is also capital preservation. Uh, you know, I, I'm again, everything that I buy um, I do it with intent and I do it thinking, you know, I could lose 100% of it and I'm prepared for that. And so I am prepared to lose 100% of my Teladoc investment. Hopefully it doesn't happen, but I'm prepared to do it. But I am not prepared to lose more than that 100% that I put in, right? I think it would be foolish for me to throw, you know, more money into it now, given the risk that still exists, even if over the long term, I do think they are going to survive. So I'm not buying any more, but I am certainly holding. I'm not selling. Okay, moving on to another topic. Uh, a lot of you have been asking me about this. NVIDIA. 
Oh my god, if you're following the news or the stock market, you know how exciting a time it is to be an NVIDIA shareholder. Uh, and I must really congratulate like anyone who bought this stock, you know, years ago, not like today. Uh, congrats to you guys because, wow, I certainly would not have expected that. I think most people did not expect it. But yes, if you've been living on a rock and you don't know, NVIDIA is up 235% just over the last year. And it's up almost 2,000% over the last five years. This is uh, life-changing money, ladies and gentlemen. This is, I mean, people who bought this stock, you know, lots of it. You know, a few years ago, you could probably buy a house in Toronto now. So really, congrats. I'm actually genuinely very happy for everyone who made a lot of money with this. Uh, but now people are asking me, what am I doing with this now? Well, I have never invested in NVIDIA. And considering the, you know, the mania that we're seeing in the markets now, I am absolutely staying away from it. To be fair, this is a profitable business. It is a business that is posting, you know, like eye-watering profitability growth like i've never seen this i mean i i keep again every earnings call is like revenues up 200 percent or whatever those are insane numbers that are not seen very often uh especially from a mature and profitable business but the question always remains will they continue to have these insane growth rates because it does seem like the market thinks they will but i don't know if that will be the case now also, to be fair, I'm not, you know, super intimately knowledgeable of NVIDIA. It's not a business that I've studied uh, or followed extremely closely. So perhaps NVIDIA experts will know more here and, and they'll, they'll be able to justify if they're buying or not. But the one thing that scares me, and I, and I would advise everyone uh, to always be kind of wary of this, when you start seeing people on the street or at your work, I'm talking about people who have never invested before, but who are now, you know, like elbowing you and being like, hey, are you buying this? I heard it's the next hot stock. When you see a situation like this, usually it's time to run away. So uh, if you are listening and you are buying lots of NVIDIA right now and you're putting your whole mortgage, you know, into it. Again, if you've studied it and you know it very well, like maybe it's a good idea. But I, I would probably, you know, urge caution. And I certainly am not considering it at all. And I would not buy it right now. I, I feel like we're going into a bubble. Um, but time will tell. And I'm sure if you're an NVIDIA listener, uh, you might even maybe get offended by what I'm about to say, the comparison I will make. But comparing this to Teladoc, yes, I know Teladoc was not profitable and all that. I know, I know. But my comparison with Teladoc here is just the fact that, uh, you know, the stock price was totally detached from fundamentals. And again, learn from my mistake that you can't you should not buy anything at any price even if it's the greatest business on earth amazon or you know microsoft is not worth 10 million dollars per share if that's what it traded at in the market and and i just hope for anyone looking at nvidia now that you just do your homework uh and you're very sure about this um but yes i would not recommend it to any of my friends or family right now i think it's it's potentially dangerous Either way, I'm also not shorting it uh, because I don't believe in shorting. I actually think it's it's not nice, but that's that's another discussion. Uh, I genuinely wish the best to everyone who holds Nvidia. And again, just from a you know analyzing businesses perspective, it's a great story, right? I love seeing success, and it's it's quite incredible seeing something like that. Anyway, my friends, thank you for listening to the New Crown Investor channel. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, give us a five-star rating. Make sure to share with a friend. And uh, yes, I look forward to connecting again with you soon.